My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, it's to educate and to teach you. So call me at 1-800-7-3-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Right, there's one thing, one thing that I know that can slaughter the bull. Ah. Supply. You throw enough new merchandise at the market all at once without new money coming in, and we could have a very rude awakening. It's not necessarily easy to see, especially on a sedate day like this one. Dow dipped 19 points, S&P declined 0.08%, NASDAQ lost 0.59%. Sometimes the new supply is as invisible as it is insidious. For example, last time we heard from Beyond Meat, the revolutionary plant-based protein company that makes faux hamburgers, among other ersatz meat dishes, they reported an unbelievable quarter. It really was. Great metrics up and down. Yet because the lockup on insider sales has just expired, the stock got annihilated. It was down more than 22% today. I happen to love Beyond Meat, the company. CEO Ethan Brown stands for a genuinely clever concept. The idea is that cows are a terrible delivery system for protein. They add fat and cholesterol while spewing methane all over the atmosphere. Instead, he's come up with plant-based protein, which tastes surprisingly similar to beef. It just skips the cow. It's like, you know, here, right to your plate, not here, the cow, and then your plate. Got it? Beyond Meat's product is still far from perfect, but it's a legitimate disruptor of the $1.4 trillion meat industry. Growth is staggering. So far this year, their sales have more than tripled, up 253% versus 2018. They're already turning a profit. If Beyond Meat keeps growing at that pace, you can easily argue that it deserves to be a multi-billion dollar company. And that's the problem, because Beyond Meat's already a multi-billion dollar company. Even after its massive decline, it's valued at nearly $5 billion. When this thing came public, they did what's known as a sliver deal, offering very little stock. That's a big reason Beyond Meat stock could price at 26 for immediately trading up to 46 26 to 46, and then surging all the way up to nearly $240 at, the, at its highs in July. Now, some of that strength was because Beyond Meat's got a brilliant concept and great execution. But a lot of it was simply because there weren't enough shares to go around. We got the mother of all short squeezes. Beyond Meat got bid up too high. At its peak, it was valued at $14 billion, which was a ridiculous level when you consider that they've got a ton of deep-pocketed competitors gunning for them. I mean, think about it. Who else is in there? they got Hormel going after them. They've got Nestle going after them. Tyson's going after them. And the Impossible Burger. The stock started uh, plummeting when Beyond Meat did a big secondary offering in August. Suddenly, there were enough shares on the market for the short sellers to go to work, and the darn thing tumbled down to 105 as of yesterday, which brings us to today's 23-point beatdown. Believe me, this decline would have been even worse if Beyond Meat hadn't reported such a strong quarter. At the end of the day, though, what matters is that the lockup on insider selling just expired. The market's being flooded with new shares of Beyond Meat, and the supply overwhelmed the demand. I think it could have further to fall because even here it seems overvalued to me. Of course, Beyond Meat's a small enough company that the market can easily digest this stock. But what happens if we get a larger onslaught of new shares? Well, you know what? We are about to find out. 
in the first full week of November, we're looking at a deluge of equity, the likes of which we haven't seen in ages. All those companies that came public in the spring, their lockups on insider selling are coming to an end. It will be beyond meat writ large, and you can call me concerned. On November 6th, the great Uber lockup expires. Currently, Uber is roughly 200 million shares trading on the open market, and they're trading pretty badly. In a little over a week, there'll be another... 763 million shares unlocked, according to Larry McDonald's Bear Trap report. That's more than triple what's currently out there. If Uber keeps trading at $32, we're talking about $24 billion worth of stock. I mean, where are we going to put that? I suspect many of the shareholders will want out because this unicorn's been a bust, and they don't want to lose more than they've already lost already. But, or, or if they have a slight profit, they want to ka-ching, ka-ching. But where the heck is the money going to come from to buy from these sellers? Well, other stocks will have to be sold, right? Unlike Beyond Meat, the Uber expiration is big enough to wobble the to hobble the entire market. Now, I think we actually would be okay if we were only Uber. However, we also need to deal with an underwriting that no one I know seems excited about. The Saudi Aramco IPO, which could be valued at as much as $2 trillion. Now, we know, don't know how much stock will be offered. We're really not even sure of the date. It's pretty opaque. But we do know that this stock is supposed to have about a 5% yield. So you say, hey, well, how low can it go? Well, guess what? I say, who cares? BP's an oil producer with a terrific growth, and it supports a 6.5% yield. Hey, it was at 5%. My chapel trust, I thought it was done going down. Uh-uh. Now, just reported a fine quarter this morning, and stock still got slammed because the oils are out of style on the Wall Street fashion show. Who the heck needs yet another fossil fuel stock? The Aramco deal, well, that could be another kiss of death to this market. They never stop pumping them out, do they? Hey, make matters worse. Get this. China keeps pumping out junk IPOs. Last week, they offered UDAO. That's DAO, which is a Chinese provider of online learning content and applications. Udall sold 5.6 million shares for $17 a piece. 5.6, 17, okay? The stock opened for trading at $13.75, down 22%. And it closed its first day at $12.50, down 26.5%. So I have to ask you, what kind of clowns thought it was a good idea to bring this public? Well, how about Citigroup, Credit Suisse, and Morgan Stanley? Gents, ladies, thanks for nothing. And the investment banks aren't done. In the next few weeks, we're going to get still more low-quality Chinese merchandise coming public. There's Fang D Network Group, an online and mobile real estate platform. There's Q&K International, a long-term apartment rental platform. I bet they perform poorly, too. The brokers who offer these are craven. The buyers are just plain stupid. The exchanges are a disgrace. Honestly, I can barely believe that these Chinese IPOs keep coming. I mean, who the heck is buying this garbage? Why does our federal government allow this? Why does our president allow it? Why does Treasury allow it? Why does the SEC allow it? Why do the investment banks allow it? Why do the exchanges allow it? Actually, you know what? We, don't, we know the answer to that. Money. Why doesn't the president do something here? These Chinese companies don't have to obey U.S. securities laws when they list here, which means we get tons of deals backed by sketchy financials. Ultimately, by the way, they end up in the MSCI index, and then our our U.S. government pension plans have to invest in them. I think it's time we just say no to Chinese IPOs. It is time we stop funding their rapacious desires to fob off crummy merchandise on unsuspecting Americans, no doubt brainwashed by the mainstream media that anything Chinese is better than anything they make here. Call me sick of it. I wish someone would do something, but either way, we've got a lot of supply coming, and that's not good for the stock market. Of course, it's never just supply that overwhelms the bull. 
You typically need some errant Fed statement or a vicious presidential tweet that ratchets up the trade war or a slew of disappointing earnings reports to finish the job. All pretty realistic possibilities. Listen, I know most people don't take me seriously when I talk about how the stock market's governed by supply and demand, just like any other market. They think something bigger must be behind any potential downturn, some Fed survey, something Jay Powell says, blah, blah, blah. Listen to me. The bottom line is that when you have billions of dollars of stock entering the market without a natural home, you better believe the averages are going to come under pressure. Be ready. These lockup expirations and IPOs, they're going to take their toll unless a flood of new money comes into the stock market. I hope we can absorb them without too much pain. But hope is not part of the equation. Barry in California. Barry. Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I am doing well, but a little fired up. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Hey, I got a, uh, just wanted to thank you for all the help that you provide to the home gamers. Welcome. Okay. And I have it. I got a question for you on Fitbit. I have a cost basis of about $8.50, and, you know, Google has tendered an offer for them, so it's a two-part question. Is there, first part, is there any way to calculate on what that price of the offer will be? And the second part is, on the day that the stock price is announced, will it always be a premium to what the stock is trading? No, we, we don't, and day? we don't really know. We don't really know what's going to happen, and I can't comment on rumors. Uh, I know uh, that I think that the company is overvalued. Sell half. Okay, let's go to Robert in California. Robert. Hi, Jim. Robert, With how are you? Having re- I'm well, thanks. Calling from sunny Southern California. Okay. With GM having reported good earnings. What are your thoughts on Goodyear, Tire, and Rubber? I think Goodyear, Tire can bounce here. It yields almost 4%, but I like growth, and that company has had no growth for as long as I can remember it, so I'm going to say no to that one. Nick in Virginia. Nick. Hey, Jim. Big fan of the show and your track record. Thank you, Nick. Just a quick question on Altria. Uh, Do you think the recent momentum that we've seen is strengthening a longer-term bull case based on some regulatory changes, or do you think this is just a short-term rebound? I think it's a short-term rebound. Um, I'm going to once again reference Carl Quintanilla's unbelievable Jewel documentary, which shows me that whatever Altria paid for a stake in Jewel is too much. And the people at Jewel should watch the documentary because you see, well, here's what I have to say about you guys. How can you live with yourself? All right, supply can crush the bull. That's why the market's seeing pressure. Let's just hope we can get through it without too much pain. Oh, man, money tonight, Ray Dalio, Jeffrey Gunlock, they're the smartest people on earth. And I'm going to tell you why I think they actually may be wrong. Then, uh, tech rhymes with wreck. And after Twitter's recent earnings, the words seem to be ringing a little bit too true. I'm eyeing the company to see what's come next. And as the U.S. Postal Service deals with the real-time demands of e-commerce, can Zebra Technologies help modernize the 244-year-old institution? I'm talking with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. stop lending so much credence to billionaire money managers. Look, they're only human. They make mistakes, and their priorities are absolutely not your priorities. 
But there's this tendency to take everything they say as gospel. I mean, after all, they must be brilliant, right? Sure, but even legends can give bad advice. Today, Ray Dalio, the genius billionaire who runs Bridgewater, came out and said central banks are running out of ammo. He thinks wealth inequality will create a horrific ideological struggle that could lead to a scary situation. And to me, that sounds a lot like sell everything. The guy makes it sound like the world's ending. When I read Dalio's remarks, I said to myself, he's not telling us to go buy Merck or Costco. He's not giving us the high sign that maybe we should pick up some Amazon or weakness or is this the time to buy McDonald's. He's not trying to steer us toward any particularly good mutual fund or toward his hedge fund or maybe Warren Buffett for all that matter. No, he just joins a long list of very smart, very rich people who publicly fret about big picture issues and end up scaring people out of the stock market. You could have said the same things in 1979 when I started investing, or 1989, 2009, and you would have missed some phenomenal gains. Maybe he's not trying to scare you, but, but that's what he's doing. Now, all my life, I've found people who are smarter than I am. I actually had the highest grade on my generals in my major at Harvard, but so what? We had guys like Bill Gates in my class. Even then, even back then, I knew something important, though. When I went to school, I didn't have any money. My parents were never going to give me a small fortune to start a company in my garage. I cobbled together a bunch of scholarships, including some money, oddly, from R.J. Reynolds for his free speech essay. Thank you, Big Tobacco. I couldn't have done it without you. I was also determined to help other people make money. Always have been. I used to leave stock tips on my answering machine. Hi, I'm not here right now, but I think you should buy the stock of Monolithic Memories. Right ahead of the quarter. Back then, I never worried about the big picture stuff like guys like Ray Dalio never stopped mentioning. I didn't fret about central banks inflating bubbles. I didn't give up. When times got tough, I looked for stocks that could work in a tougher environment. During the Great Recession, I found Salesforce.com. Coming out of the recession, I found Fang. Earlier this year, I found Watch. I even formed a club, the ActionLearnsPlus.com club, so I could look like an idiot publicly while I'm trying to teach you to maybe learn something. I'm castigated regularly on Twitter for not seeing the bubble. And not recognizing that this all has to end badly. This all has to end badly. Oh, by the way, have I told you? It all ends badly. Frankly, I don't care. I could come out here every night and say there's always a bull market somewhere. But why bother to try to find it? In the long run, we're all dead. I could tell you that the world's falling apart, so you might as well hide in a bunker somewhere. That was my takeaway from Ray Dalio's big speech. It felt like Europe in 34. But I'm not a billionaire. I don't have a billionaire's priorities. I want to help you try to make money in the stock market. That's my job. These billionaire hedge fund managers, on the other hand, don't really need to think about the impact of their words. That's why I think you should take them with a grain of salt. If, if, so what if they're wrong? They can just say that they were early, and they'll be right eventually. When I'm wrong, you better believe I'll be torn to pieces for social media. And I do take that stuff personally. I got Ryan Ohio, but I still read it. At the end of the day, my goal is to help you escape the chains I found myself in at college and law school, and then when I lived in my car a few years later. I wasn't the smartest guy at school, but I worked harder than anyone I know. Now I'm trying to duplicate that exact formula for you. So believe me, when I tell you, fretting about central banks and political turmoil is a terrible way to make money in the stock market. A billionaire hedge fund manager's priorities should not be your priorities. Guys like Dalio, they're absurdly rich. They don't need to search for opportunities. But the rest of us, we do. Stick with Craig. Tomorrow. Kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. You have to use a t-shirt to preserve the shirt. That's what you oh, do. They taught, no, me I don't this. they taught me this I don't at Goldman Sachs, David. It's one of the few things that are left over from my days at Goldman. Always wear a t-shirt and try to get a 9 multiple in your stock. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Last week, Twitter crashed headfirst into a concrete retaining wall. 
After a year and a half of excellent numbers, the product of, of a brilliantly executed turnaround, the social media platform reported a seemingly dismal quarter with tepid earnings and a muted outlook. In response, nearly every analyst covering Twitter cut their estimates, and a couple of them downgraded That's how the stock tumbled more than 20% last Thursday, budging from $38 to $30. Look at this. This is what I, this is a picture of what I call pure carnage. Since then, we've been filling a ton of questions from you about what to do with this thing. Everyone wants to know whither? Twitter. Before I tell you where I think it's headed, though, you have to understand where it's coming from. So let's rewind to the last time Twitter reported, back in July. These results were far from perfect, but there was enough going right that the market was willing to ignore what went wrong. The negatives, Twitter missed Wall Street's earnings estimates, and their guidance for the third quarter was pretty tepid. Maybe they, that should have been the red flag we needed to be able to spot this ahead of time. However, at the time, nobody cared about the stake in earnings. Not when Twitter made major progress in the two metrics investors were really focused on, user growth and monetization. The company's monetizable daily active users came in at $139 million. That's up 14% year-over-year, 4% for the previous quarter. That's nice. That was the only thing that really mattered to a lot of people because Twitter's not really an earnings story. The earnings come later. Right now, it's still a user growth story. Uh, they're expanding their reach figure out how to do a better job of making money off that user base. That translated into much better than expected sales, which was more than enough to offset the not-so-hot earnings number and even the downbeat guidance. So Twitter's stock shot up on the news, and it continued to rally through early September. You get the good core, you know, you get the good growth numbers, not the earnings, good growth numbers, and it does, you know, it really kind of takes off here. Uh, it climbed all the way to 45 but then something changed. The market turned against high-flying growth stocks, and money started rotating into cheaper value names. At the time, I thought the stock was only getting hammered because of that rotation, although in retrospect, there were warning signs that something was wrong. That's, that weaker guidance in July, it really should have been a big tip-off. So mea culpa to me, thinking that this was just a rotation and not something specific to Twitter. The other red flag, in August, Twitter announced plans to remove outside data sources from its ad-buying system, in part because they didn't want to be involved in something that some people would think would be shady. But when you stop using outside data, your targeted ads become less effective. You do get fewer advertisers. So going into the quarter last week, the stock had already sunk from 45 to 38. Then Twitter reported, and you know what, the bearish has had a field day. The company posted a three-cent earnings miss off a 20-cent basis, and the revenue came in much weaker than expected, much. It's up just 9% uh, a year over year. Uh, That, by the way, is the first time they've had a single-digit revenue growth since 2017. Worse, the guidance for next quarter was also pretty light. Making this more complicated, Twitter gave you a fabulous daily active user number, 145 million, up 17% year over year. I remember when I first heard that, I said, okay, we got something to work with here. They delivered on the key metric, but that hideous revenue number terrified people. And management's commentary was far from encouraging. What went wrong? Well, the company mentioned a number of headwinds, including revenue product issues and greater-than-expected advertising seasonality in July and August. Well, that's a head-scratcher. On the call, CEO Jack Dorsey admitted that there were some, quote, missteps and bugs, end quote, in their mobile application promotion business uh, where you can advertise mobile apps. However, they're rebuilding that technology behind this business, and Dorsey said they're better equipped to fix any bugs that come up than they were a couple of years ago. 
As for the difficult advertising environment in July and August, well, that appears to have gotten better in September. See, remember, I'm biasing this toward thinking, you know, where I'm coming here. According to CFO Ned Siegel, who's a friend of the show, slower business over the summer was in part due to a relatively lighter slate of big events and launches in July and August compared to 2018. And here we're talking about uh, World Cup and soccer. However, the analysts weren't willing to give Twitter any benefit of the doubt here. Most of them just cut numbers uh, at some very influential ones like Terry, uh, Heath Turry over at Goldman Sachs outright downgraded his stock. That was painful. Even though he likes how rapidly Twitter's growing its user base, he can't get behind the stock when there's so little visibility into the advertising business. Okay, I get where he's coming from. I get where all the negatives are coming from. But, man, I mean, didn't Twitter just lose 20% of its value in a day? I mean, come on. The stock's down 35% since early September highs. After such a huge decline, I I wonder if the sell-off wasn't an overreaction. To me, this has come down enough that we got to rethink the negativity. The thing is, Twitter's always tweaking its platform, including the way they make and sell ads, with the goal of improving the user experience. It looks like they tweaked too much over the summer when they cut out third party data suppliers, making the experience better for users, but not please, not so pleasing, I should say, for advertisers. All this happened during a period when there weren't a ton of big events to advertise, which is how you got such an ugly quarter. And Twitter says some of these problems will continue into the current quarter. That was bad. Okay, all that said, with the stock down under $30, I think it's too late to sell, but just in time to start building a position if you don't already own it. I've been noodling this for whether I should uh, think about this for uh, ActionLearnsPlus.com Club because it's just gotten down so much. I haven't pulled the trigger yet on even the bullpen. Remember, we've been through this before. Twitter's reported not so hot quarter in July of last year, and the stock got obliterated, pulling back from the mid-40s to the high-20s. Eventually, though, management figured things out and delivered a string of strong quarters, taking the stock back up to the mid-40s before the company hit another wall. I think they can do it again. Why? Because Twitter's current problems feel like temporary setbacks to me. Managers continue to do a great job of growing the user base, and at the end of the day, that's what matters. As long as people keep flocking to the platform, if only just to find out what the president's up to, they'll be able to work out the kinks in the advertising system. Sure, Twitter screwed up, okay? And the stock deserved to get hit. But it didn't deserve to lose a fifth of its value, for heaven's sake. The last time this stock had a major meltdown, it found a floor of support at $27 to $28, which is one more reason to start buying it right here at $29 and change. The core thesis that Twitter's turning itself into a more enticing place to spend your screen time remains intact. If anything, it's gotten better as the user growth numbers are accelerating. Management just needs to get the advertising system back on track, which is something they've done before, which is the bottom line. Ultimately, I think these prices right here, right now, I think this is going to prove to be a gift. Oh, and if it keeps going down, well, I just finished reading Mark, as you know, Mark Benioff's excellent bestseller, uh, Trailblazer. And in it, he talks about wanting to buy Twitter. The shareholders didn't want him to. But you know what? He talked about how valuable the property was. If this thing keeps coming down, you know what? I bet someone else will try to acquire it. Twitter is an incredibly valuable standalone property. It's a broken stock, but not a broken company. Walter in Florida. Walter. Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for taking my call. You're quite welcome. I appreciate it. My question is twofold today, Jim. First, is SiriusXM a great company but a broken stock? I ask this because it's been range-bound in single digits seemingly forever. And my second question is... Do you think this stock will ever break out, or is it going to be up five cents, down five cents for the foreseeable future? 
Okay, well, look, this is a subscription-based product that is linked to autos, and auto sales have been bad. As long as auto sales have been bad, it is going to mark time. I urge you to stay with it because I think that when auto sales turn up, the stock can go to 10. It's a very good company. Let's go to Michael in Nevada. Michael. Kramer, how are you? Thank you for taking my call today. All good. Well, I have a quick question for you. I purchased uh, YY Entertainment Social Platform head- headquartered in China yeah. about 18 months past. And, you know, it's taken a pretty good hit for several factors and mainly the China and trade war issues. And so I'm looking at, you know, it took a pretty good hit, about 50%. Do I dump the stock, take the tax credit, or just stay in and use this as a long-term investment? Uh, I don't believe it is a long-term investment. I am uh, heavily uh, anti these Chinese stocks. I wish that most of them would just go... Uh, n- never been floated. I think it's a shame, uh, including YY, which I don't care for. All right, what the heck to do with the stock of Twitter? Sure, it deserved to get hit, no doubt about it, but n- not to these levels. On the other hand, well, you got the opportunity. Much more man money at, including Zebra Technologies that's soaring after earnings. Could an investment in the company help your portfolio change its stripes? I'm talking to the CEO. Then for years, Baxter International has been a quality investment in the healthcare space. But could last week's drop after earnings be what I consider to be a red flag? And, of course, I'm taking all your calls. Rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Look at the stock of Zebra Technologies run. This longtime Kramer fave is a major player in the enterprise asset intelligence space. Think specialty printers, mobile computing, data capture, radio frequency identification, and real-time locating systems that help other businesses keep track of their inventory, their vehicles, and their employees. NFL teams even use their technology to pinpoint exactly where players are on the field. Zebra's been a fantastic performer, and I am proud to say, as our guest knows, that we've been behind it all the way. Today, the stock rallied another nearly $15, or close to 7%, after the company reported yet another blowout quarter. The company posted a 15-cent earnings beat off 328 basis. Inline sales, even better, management gave bullish guidance for the next quarter. So can this stock keep climbing? Let's take a closer look with Anders Gustafsson. He's the always bankable CEO of Zebra Technologies. You get a better read on the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Gustafsson, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you. Thank you. Anders, I don't know. It really came together this quarter, whether it be a gigantic 39,000 mobile computer to a grocer in this country, whether it be the healthcare orders overseas, yep. whether it be a recognition about just-in-time inventory and how, how, and how you can save and not have as many employees. It seemed to hit some – it's always been good, Anders. Yeah. But what happened? What's the tipping point here? Uh, yeah, we, I think we just executed very well. You know, we, we have been executing very well for, for some time. And uh, as a friend of mine used to say, you know, business is a complex team sport. And uh, I think the kudos to the Zebra team for having been able to execute well for, for a long time. Now, at the same time, you've had to deal with, I mean, you're smack in the middle of the China trade problem. Yeah. You are pivoting quickly and getting your manufacturing out of China. How's that working? So far, so good. You know, we've already moved uh, all the products that were impacted by uh, list one, two, and three. Right. Uh, we're now in the middle of uh, moving our list four products out. But as a technology company, electronics company, you know, our supply chain has been very focused on China. 
And we're now moving to other Southeast Asian countries with our current partners and basically replicating our line. So we will have more redundancy in the system going forward. Will the government say, wait a second, you are just literally taking the Chinese people's product and moving it somewhere else, and therefore you're not doing what what, uh, President Trump wants? No, we are very careful making sure that we get the proper certification that the country of origin becomes uh, real. So we're sourcing the same components many times, but they're coming from outside of China. They don't go into China. I was with someone this weekend who sourced a billion dollars worth of product from China, was trying to move it out, and the quality wasn't as good. Are you able to replicate that great quality that the Chinese have? Yeah, we fully expect so. So we, you know, the the partners that have been manufacturing our products today are the ones that are moving the same products to other countries in Southeast Asia. And they're going into existing facilities. So mm-hmm. uh, we think that this, you know, the startup uh, issue should be minimal. And we will have a lot of effort, a lot of uh, focus by our, pe- our team from the U.S. and Asia, as well as our partners, to make sure that we stay on top of okay, that. Okay. Now, at one point, you do actually call out the weakest area is China. Yeah. Now, uh, is that going down the road to hurt your performance? Or are the other areas doing so well that we don't have to worry? Well, this, this quarter, uh, China was down uh, uh, double digits. It's pretty amazing, isn't yeah, it? And yet you great... still blew the numbers away. Yeah, so in, in, and China has been a great performer for us yeah. over a long period of time, right? And, and uh, the weakness we saw in, in Asia was exclusively attributable to, to China. Right. So if, if, uh, if you exclude China, we had great growth in the rest of Asia. Well, let's talk about the biggest con- uh, contract out there. You won the U.S. Postal Service contract. Yep. Isn't that gigantic? That is a large contract. So it's, you know, we're very proud of, of the, the trust that the USPS has placed on us to be able to supply this. This is the biggest contract in the history of the company. And they, you know, they're looking to now uh, great, create greater visibility and, and better execution ar- around their, their parcel delivery network. Now, they do have, I don't know if people realize, but they, all the big retailers yeah. use them for e-commerce. Sure. Yeah, they're, uh, they're a very large e-commerce delivery uh, service. Right. And, you know, they, they have a, a huge network of, of letter carriers. And, you know, we will instrument them with, with the new technology that will be, enable them to have better productivity and a better service. You said to me that healthcare would be huge. It looks like the Europeans are really starting to adopt it. Why are they being so aggressive? But the, yeah, healthcare has been our fastest growing vertical for the right. last several years. It was our fastest growing vertical in, in Q3. Uh, we've seen it, it you know, growing um, to become much more of a global opportunity. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, Latin America was a strong quarter for, had a strong quarter with, with healthcare also. But Europe has been strong, and, and a lot of that is uh, regulation. Uh, so in Europe, it's a more centralized healthcare system, and often they come out with a regulation that, that kind of governs a, a, a whole country or so. All right, now let's just talk about this grocer. I know you don't name the grocer, but 39,000 of our TC52 mobile computers. Is that, uh, t- t- is that wanding? What is that? No, so that, <clears throat> they can do that also. But, right. But it, it's, um, first maybe, you know, in, health, in, in retail, uh, you know, the, the industry has transformed over the last few years. We're right. trying to you know, invest heavily in uh, technology to enable omni-channel uh, capabilities, improve right. the, the uh, front of store or customer experience. So our, our type of solutions are helping uh, retailers do just that. You can't really do buy online, pick up in store without uh, leveraging our type of technology. And this grocer is looking to do the same. So it's, it's helping to dri- drive omni-channel capabilities, improve the customer experience. Well, I mean, just, you cannot do it without Zebra. You cannot but, do it. Without type of uh, Right. But there, you, we but have you really don't have, well, but your competitors, frankly, are, are really not in your in your. 
they're not in your league. We've been doing well, but you know, so we we have a very solid market share in in retail. See, I think you're only competitors yourself. Yeah. That's how I look at it because yeah. I do a lot of work. I mean, I look. I was going by the old Simple Technology yeah. building on yeah. the LIE the other day, and I said, "You guys own it, and yeah. you just you compete against yourself to, to up your game constantly." Yeah, no, I think that's fair. All right. Well, yeah. congratulations yep. on just an Thank amazing you. work. Guys, look at this stock. And we're not going away from it at all. That's Anders Gustafsson. He is the CEO of Zebra Technologies. When this stock goes, it really goes. Man, money's back here to the break. It is time to serve the light. Let's and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy, the lightning round is over. I'm going to with Joey in Arizona. Joey! How you doing? I'm calling from Phoenix, Arizona. I want to know what you think about Grand Canyon University educational stock, Lope stock. Uh, you know, I, I'm just not a fan of those uh, these business education stocks. I just haven't been. I've been right for a long time. I'm not deviating my position. Gerard in New Jersey. Gerard! Hey, Jim. My stock is CVS Health. Which took a crash all the way from what? Oh, 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 stock was at 80. It went down to 53. Now it's back to 66. Sells at nine times earnings. That's crazy. It should get well multiple. I see the stock going to 80 by year end. I own the travel trust. Dick in New Jersey. Dick. Hi there. Kramer Dick. versus Kramer. Listen, should I get a divorce from BlackBerry? I've had it for six years since it was research in motion. John Chen came over. He's supposedly be a takeover. Uh, Change guy, nothing's happened. It's at an all-time low. This stock, and did, also I, there's an accounting I did the Kramer problem. Versus Kramer in very badly, uh, I, I, and I think BBN's very badly too. So we're going to stay away from that one. And remember, nobody ever buys a stock in order to get divorced from it. Ha! Ah. Jeff in California, Jeff. Hey Jim, thanks so much for taking my call. My pleasure. I'm. I'm sitting on some losses, big losses from 3D Systems, symbol DDD. Is it ever yeah. going to come You're back? You're sitting on the dock of losses, and I'm going to tell you that. Sell, sell, sell. Okay, let's go to Jeff in California. Jeff! Oh, I'm sorry. Make it Ron in Pennsylvania. Ron! Hello, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Uh, good. I'm speaking with my stop god. And in the immortal words of Mike Myers, I'm not worthy. Thank you very much for all your many years. Uh, you're quite welcome. I got a hard-hitting show tonight. You got to watch it. I kind of really just hit it tonight. Let's go. Okay. Uh, in 2017, I started buying Cyrus One stock. Yes. Uh, from listening to conference calls, I know they've been growing, buying land and building, and expanding overseas. They pay a 2.7% dividend, in which I reinvest. Right. Two questions. I'm not quite sure. Would web services companies be a customer or a competitor for them. And second off, what do you think about the company? You know, they're talking? a customer, and Wojo, Gary Wojcik, he is doing a fantastic job. I am a believer in Cyrus One. Let's go to Tom in California. Tom. Babuya. Babuya back. How are you? This is Tom from California. All right. And I wanted some information on Aero Pharmaceutical. We just had the company. I, I like the company very much. I said bye, 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 and I remember. Let's go to Rob, Bob in New Jersey. Bob. Oh, booyah, Lord Jim. Yo, yo. Okay, calling about a stock that personalizes its support services regarding fertility issues. Progeny, P-G-N-Y. 
I do not know progeny, and I don't mind saying it. I do not know it, and I've got to do some work. Let's go to Irwin in New York. Irwin. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Irwin. (laughs) I was looking for something interesting in the 5G space for my grandchildren, and I came up with Keysight Technologies, K-E-Y. You got horse sense, man. That stock is on fire. I have been asking about that stock over and over again. Barry, I have been, uh, let's say, uh, how about wrong and not doing a piece on it? It's a really good idea, and I'm going to do it. Let's go to Erica in New York. Erica. Hey, hi. I'm so happy you took my call. Thank you. About GE, we owned GE for so many years. Well, GE is tomorrow morning's business. We will know in 12 hours how GE is. So why don't we just wait to see? I expect absolutely nothing great from this quarter because it's an entirely... A redo, reset year. We have to give Larry Culp at least six more months, and so expect nothing great. Let's go to uh, Pamela in New York. Pamela. Hi. Hello, Mr. Kramer. My dream has come true. I'm talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) So listen, so you know what? I like proof points. Right. And I'm just wondering, is now a good time? Is I think it, it is. I mean, Gary Steele's doing a great job. A lot of people feel that Sachin Adele has gotten so aggressive in cybersecurity that they're really going to be able to derail proof point. I still consider proof point to be a winner. And that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. What the, what the heck just happened to Baxter International? I mean, this is a humdrum medical supply company with a stock that just got poleaxed last week. Baxter is a textbook slow and steady grower, one of my faves, a company that makes everything from pre-filled syringes to IV delivery systems, infusion pumps, anesthetics, pharmacy compounding equipment, and kidney dialysis machines. It's not the kind of stock you expect to lose 10% of its value in a single session. Yet that's exactly what it did on Thursday before sinking another 2% on Friday. And I said to myself, I have got to find out what is happening with the stock of one of my favorite companies. For years, Baxter's been a safe haven in the healthcare sector. That's why I've been recommending it for ages. The stock's got a long-term record of outperforming the rest of the industry ever since it spun off Baxalta. It's drug division in 2015. Hey, we pushed that one aggressively, too. And then Buxalta promptly got bought by Shire for a 36% premium. Midas touch. So what went wrong? The worst possible thing that could go wrong, accounting issues. On Thursday, Baxter reported some solid preliminary results for the last quarter, but they also had some grim news. They told us they were launching an investigation into misstatements into previously reported non-operating income. The problem, apparently there was something wrong with the way Baxter was calculating foreign exchange fluctuations in intra-company transactions. They were using an old standard that's not in keeping with generally accepted accounting principles. Basically, when Baxter moved money from one currency into another, 
which happens all the time. It was recording these transactions after the related exchange rates were already known. And that is a very big no-no. How much money are we talking about? Well, Baxter reported 113 million net foreign exchange gain in 2015, a 28 million gain in 2016, 50 million in 2017, 72 million last year, 22 million in the first half of this year. So that's not nothing. It's not a nothing burger. And it's kind of changed the story for me. Now, my normal rule of thumb, for those of you who know, and it's written in every single one of my books, accounting irregularities equals sell. I used to have it as a post-it right on my machine, right on my computer. Why? Because when things go bad, when it turns out the scale of the problem was much larger than management originally thought, the damage to your stock can be devastating and even longer lasting. Most of the time, it doesn't play out this way, but it's rarely worth the risk of sticking around to find out. However, if anyone deserves the benefit of the doubt, it's Baxter. The company's been such a consistently strong performer in recent years, I am inclined at least to take a closer look at the situation. Even after the big sell-off, the stock has doubled since I recommended it in 2015 after that back solid spin-off, trouncing the 44% gain in the S&P 500 over the same period. So it's not easy to just leave a stock that you like. That's one of the lessons I'm teaching here. As for Baxter, the company, they reported a series of strong quarters. This is a nice, steady business, consistent track record of innovation. Earlier this year, they got FDA approval for a new blood clot inhibitor and a new insulin formulation that has a longer shelf life than its competitors. It will last for 30 days in room temperature or two years if refrigerated. I'm doing some work in this particular area myself, and I've got to tell you, that's phenomenal. Baxter also is working on a new dialysis system. Thanks to the diabetes epidemic, sadly, there's a lot of money in dialysis, especially in-home dialysis systems that make the whole process of filtering your blood less miserable. Management has been forecasting acceleration in sales growth over the next few years, and some major margin expansion is occurring. Until this accounting issue, they'd never given us much reason to doubt that they could hit these targets. In fact, the same day Baxter told us about the accounting problem, they also reported their preliminary results for the third quarter. The numbers were solid. While the company's sales came in a tiny bit light, up 5% on a constant currency basis, their operating income came in much higher than expected, $555 million. Wall Street was only looking for $488 million. Oh, it wasn't perfect, but boy, there's a ton to like here. Unfortunately, though, in my experience over many years of investing, as much as I may like a company, and you know I like these guys, no amount of positive earnings can offset the damage done by accounting irregularities which is why the stock got clobbered. What do we do with Baxter now? Has it become too risky to own? Or should we use this pullback as a buying opportunity in an otherwise high-quality stock? First, it's important to get a handle on the the scale of the problem. That's what you start with doing when you see these. According to Deutsche Bank, the accounting issue might be worth $0.07 a share going forward. In other words, they expect Baxter's earnings to take a 2.1% haircut. Not great. But with the stock already down more than 10%, it's already back, baked into the share price. The analysts at Deutsche are more worried that management wouldn't tell us whether they're allowed to keep buying back stock while the accounting irregularities are investigated. Still, they think the fundamentals are sound. The thesis is intact. All right, that's the bull case. Sure, there's more uncertainty here, but business is good. How much can you hate a steady eddy medical technology company with a 5% organic growth very high and 19.5% operating margins? I can see where they're coming from. But other firms were more negative, uh, arguing that you should stay on the sidelines until the dust settles and we get more clarity. As much as I like Baxter, I'm thinking that's where I come out because I'm just very conservative when it comes to accounting issues. Where am I? I got to tell you, I'm tempted to recommend Baxter here. The fundamentals are good. Their sales growth is actually accelerating. The secular tailwinds that have boosted this company for years, aging population and rise in in-home dialysis treatment remain intact. 
And after years of consistent execution, Baxter's earned some goodwill, especially since the accounting issue is unrelated to the company's actual operational results, which would be so horrible that I would just tell you sell, sell, sell. However, my discipline says it doesn't matter how much you like a company. When there are accounting irregularities, what you should do is step aside. And look, the numbers Baxter's discussing may be fairly small, but they remain material. Last year, the company recorded net foreign exchange gains of $73 million. That was about 10% of their net income. On top of that, the lack of detail on whether or not the company's allowed to keep buying back the shares, that did give me pause. Plus, Baxter's not perfect. Their medication delivery and clinical nutrition businesses came in weaker than expected. And at just over 20 times earnings, the stock isn't that cheap considering these issues. It is so complex when you see accounting issues, so complex. You want so much to say, let's just do it. But the bottom line here is Baxter's a high-quality company with a terrific track record. At the end of the day, though, accounting irregularities still equal sell, even if those irregularities don't seem like a huge deal at first glance. Now, look, eventually I think you can buy this one into weakness. We just aren't there yet. Either Baxter needs to come down some more or we need to get more clarity on the situation. Until then, I'm urging you to stay on the sidelines or wait things out in a maybe in a cleaner medical device story, like at Abbott Labs, ABT, which is run by the great Miles White and has a multi-year record of excellent performance that will let you sleep a little more soundly. Yes, I am tempted. My rules say I can't. Stick with Kramer. If AMD goes down tomorrow, I think you should buy the stock. I think it was a darn good quarter. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.